0: Show notes for this episode including all links mentioned in this episode can be found by going to shamelessmom.com and clicking on episode 218. Welcome to the Shameless Mom Academy. I'm your host Sarah Dean and I'm here to give you and other passionate dedicated moms the tools you need to bridge the gap between motherhood and living the life of your dreams. I'm also here to help you be a little more shameless every day, because if you aren't building a life you're extraordinarily proud of, what kind of legacy are you building? So let's dive in. Allie is a tireless advocate for children and families, focusing on kinship, foster, and adoptive families. She launched, funded, and currently serves as the executive director of Foster Kinship, a nonprofit organization devoted to the support of kinship families. She founded Foster Kinship to provide much-needed resources and peer-to-peer support for the dedicated individuals working tirelessly to raise their relatives' children, keeping these children both connected to family and safe from harm. A licensed foster and adoptive parent herself, Ali is a frequent- Contributor to the local, state, and national conversation on kinship and foster care. Allie is completing a PhD in public affairs at UNLV and holds a master's degree in organizational systems renewal from Seattle University, specializing in family systems and systemic trauma and healing, organizational consulting, and group facilitation. Allie currently resides in Las Vegas with her husband and her five year old son. Allie always knew that she wanted to be a mother through adoption, and she also felt a tremendous professional pull towards serving children and families who have experienced trauma. Allie has so beautifully pursued her personal and professional dreams in order to impact the lives of over 4,000 children in the last six years, while building her own family with her husband and her son, Anthony. Listen in to hear Allie share what kinship care is and why it needs dramatically more support and resources. How to find resources and connections for kinship care in your area. 10 questions that identify if a child is at risk for mental health or physical challenges later in life. This is for all kids, by the way, not just children in foster care or kinship. Considerations to make if you're thinking of starting your own nonprofit. The beauty of imperfect action and why you shouldn't wait until you know it all to build something that you're passionate about and the power of the highs and lows of fostering and adoption. I will let you know that Allie was introduced to me through a great mutual friend, my friend Sarah Morrison, who I adore. So shout out to Sarah for this introduction. And I am so delighted to have had the opportunity to connect with Allie and learn from her and learn about the amazing work that she's doing. This is like the epitome of a shameless mom to opt for motherhood through a non-traditional route, and then to go on to impact 4,000 more children in a similar situation to her own child over the course of six years. Pretty powerful. So I cannot wait to introduce you to Ali Caliendo. Ali Caliendo, welcome to the Shameless Mom Academy. I'm so happy to have you here today.
1: Thank you so much for having me.
0: I told Allie before we started recording that, and our audience knows this because I've been talking about it a little bit, but I have all these forces in the universe that keep throwing things about foster care in my direction. So I'm very excited that we were connected through a mutual friend and we get to have a conversation about foster care and what has inspired it to be such a huge part of your life and part of your personal and professional journey. So yes. Ready to dig in? Absolutely. Absolutely. All right, so tell us a little bit more about the dynamics of your personal and professional life beyond your bio and what you're most excited about right now.
1: Well, so I run a nonprofit that I started, and I'm primarily concerned with kids who are living with their relatives, but I'm also a foster and adoptive parent, and so that keeps me very busy. My son is almost five, and we fostered him first and then adopted him. Super excited that he's about to go to kindergarten. So that's going to happen in the fall. And I just can't wait for this next phase of his development. And I'm also way more excited. Um, This is super nerdy. I'm in the middle of completing my dissertation to get my PhD. And I'm finally at the stage where I get to do my own research and I just got it approved, you know, to move forward. And so I'm uh, so excited to be focused 100% on kinship care policy. <laughs> and no one really cares, but it's so much fun for me. So I'm super excited about the next year for myself academically.
0: <laughs> oh, that's so cool. That, I mean, that's a telltale sign that you're doing what you should be doing when you're like, yes, I can't wait for my dissertation.
1: <laughs> it's so much fun. I have no one to talk to about it, but it is super fun. <laughs> So I'm just excited for that part of my life. And um, hopefully to be done by the end of the year, that would be amazing.
0: <laughs> oh, so exciting. So you are a mom, you run a nonprofit, and you were in school for your PhD. Did I get all yeah. those things correct? That's correct. I'm okay. also insane. <laughs> just checking, just making yeah. <laughs> sure I had that all right. That's a lot. Holy cow. So tell us, I think we'll probably end up getting to having conversation about your schooling and all those things as we get through your story. So let's back up a little bit and tell us about your personal connection to fostering and adoption and where that began.
1: So it began early. So my mom was adopted in the fifties, you know, back when adoption and foster care was totally different, but it was always something that I just thought was normal. So my mom was adopted and I thought, okay, you know, you could have your own kids or you could adopt kids. And for me as a kid, It was just the same thing. And so I remember being 12 and just really saying to myself, I want to adopt. And I knew it very clearly, even at a young age, that I wanted to adopt my children. I remember at the time people were saying, oh, you'll change your mind when you get older. But I really never did. And so it was just always in my mind as something I wanted to do. As I got older and started working with children, I'm really, really passionate about children who have undergone any sort of trauma. I realized how important foster care was independent of adoption and how much these kids need just stable homes. And so just got so involved in child welfare that being a foster parent was like the next thing for me. In fact, when I met my husband, the first night we were talking and I said, listen, I'm planning on fostering and adopting. If that's not something you're into, like, do not date me. Wow, <laughs>
0: that's, a, that's a big conversation <laughs> for a first date.
1: It was. Yeah. I don't know why he stayed with me. He was not scared <laughs> away. He should have been scared. He's more scared now. <laughs>
0: <laughs> so you told your husband that you knew that this was part of your path. And then what happened?
1: Yep. So, well, once we got married, I had dragged him basically to the foster parent classes that you have to take. He wasn't totally on board, but I was, like I said, it was going to happen. So he came around through the training. Once you learn about what kids need, it's kind of hard to look away. Mm -hmm. And we find that many husbands sort of come along after their wives. If you're a couple but yeah, so we took the class and then almost immediately we got placement of a seven-month old baby boy. His name was Anthony and he ended up being our son, which wasn't what we expected, but his mom couldn't get it together in the time frame that she had and her rights were terminated and they asked us if we would be willing to adopt. And of course, you know, once you have a child living with you, it's, you know, of course we said yes. And so um, we adopted him when he was about 18 months old. And like I said, he's almost five now. So he was our first and only foster placement. My plan was to foster a lot more. And I actually have a passion for elementary age and I wanted to do that. But the reality of foster care is these kids need a lot. So Anthony was drug exposed and alcohol exposed in utero and experienced a significant amount of physical trauma as well. And so he has just additional needs from all of that. Yeah. And I'm busy. And so I wanted to devote as much as I could to him and not take on additional children with additional needs. And it just felt like it wouldn't be fair. So that's why we stopped fostering once we adopted Anthony. But my heart is still there with wanting to do more and more for kids. So maybe in the future, we can do it again.
0: You're not limited in the ways that you can mother. And I've talked about this a lot as I've gone through my infertility journey on the podcast. And I think that you choosing to adopt one child, but then building a whole profession around serving children in other ways is a whole nother way of mothering. And that's how you can, you know, mother endless kids essentially by what you're doing with your nonprofit. So I don't think that it's at all limiting that you only have the one child because of the work that you're doing.
1: Yeah. Thank you so much for saying that because it does feel sometimes like I haven't done what I wanted to in my own motherhood journey. But I was speaking with one of my clients. So my clients are all primarily family members who take on family. So usually grandmas or aunts. And she, ha- I've known her for years since I started. And she was asking me around Christmas, oh, Allie, you know, you still just have one kid or are you taking on more? And I said, no, we're really done with one right now because he, like I said, has all these needs. Yeah. And she looked at me and she said, you know what? But you really, it's like you have thousands of kids because of how many you've helped. Right. And that just totally broke me down. And it's, you know... Um, It made me feel good, (laughs) but it's true. You know, being able to sort of extend my wish for all kids to be safe by running this business is fulfilling a part of me that, you know, I wish I could save all the kids. Can't do that, but I can try to do as much as I can to help them at the right level. So that gives me a lot of joy. What I do gives me great joy.
0: Right, right. What are the biggest challenges you faced as a foster parent?
1: As a foster parent? One of the difficulties is just the level of intrusion that Mm. the foster care agency or, you know, if it's the government has in your life. So feeling like at any time they can show up, take pictures of your home. You know, I felt very much always like I had to be on the best behavior as a parent. And we were first time parents. So it was nerve wracking for me to have someone judging me and truly they're judging to make sure kids are safe and I get it. But I I had high anxiety around it. I remember the first day after we received placement of Anthony in our home, I was a total mess. This kid was really sick. He's seven months old. We don't know what we're doing, to be totally honest. You know, it's 4 p.m. The child is still in his pajamas. I'm still in my pajamas. (laughs) You know, we're all crying. I have just gone to Walmart. So I have chemicals all over the kitchen table that I haven't put away yet, you know, in the locked cabinet and our social worker showed up unexpectedly. And I remember opening the door like, Oh my God, she's going to take this child. I'm not fit to oh do my this. Gosh, Just the level of anxiety that I had around it was difficult.
0: And those circumstances are no different than any regular mom, <laughs> like being yeah. in your pajamas at that time of day, having like the unsafe things sitting out on the counter, like all that, that's just normal motherhood. But when it's your first time and you feel like there's extra eyes on you, that's such a different feeling. I could see how that would be really scary.
1: Yeah, it was sort of a terrifying time. And luckily, my caseworker, we had a great caseworker, you know, our agency, they're great partners, but it doesn't take away that sort of heightened, you know, your life is an open book. And when you foster too, there's so much uncertainty. We didn't know what was going to happen with his biological mom Was she going to show up at court? Was she going to request visits? Was she going to get sober and realize what she was missing? All of those things were questions for almost a year. In addition, I was kind of like, well, what if his grandma comes up and says that she wants to take him? And as someone who advocates for kin, I was really torn because I was like, no one's taking this child from me. But also if grandma shows up, like my whole belief system would be challenged And so it was a really tough year, just being in that uncertainty, dealing with, you know, visitation and court and doctor's appointments and social workers. And it was hard. So there's a lot of challenges, but I would absolutely do it again and recommend it for anyone who's thinking about it because it's totally worth it.
0: Right, right. What are the biggest gifts you've been given aside from the amazing, perfect physical being of your child, what are some of the like unexpected gifts that came out of fostering and adopting?
1: I think it's made me a better person. And I think probably motherhood would have made me a better person no matter what. But to have to develop a sense of empathy for not just the child, but their entire family system that's not yours And mistakes were made by his mom, but the more I knew, the more I saw sort of the generational trauma she was experiencing and just a great deal of empathy for what another person is going through. And I'm really grateful for that gift because I can see it on both sides and I'm grateful you know, to have never had to walk in her shoes, but I also am so sad for her Mm -hmm. that that was what had happened in her life. And so... I think about her and her family a lot actually and hope that they're okay because if I am to love Anthony I'm going to love his entire family. So there's a lot that you know we learned from that. I remember the day of his termination. So the termination hearing is when birth parents don't have haven't done what they need to to get their children back and the judge will terminate their rights. And I remember all our friends and family texting and calling that day saying, congratulations, this is wonderful, you guys can move forward. And my husband and I were just in the parking lot of the courthouse sobbing because how sad is it for Anthony that at some point his own family couldn't do what they needed to care for him. Mm -hmm. And someday we're going to have to have that conversation. And it was just sort of a heartbreaking moment in all of this journey. And I cherish it because it allows me, I think, to be a kinder person just throughout the world.
0: Right. That's such an interesting point. As I shared in our pre-interview, and I've talked about on the show before, I worked in a psychiatric hospital with kids in my early 20s, and many of them were kids in the foster care system, ages four to 14. And it was, as a (laughs) 20-something-year-old, single with no kids, it was kind of hard to be empathetic to the parents in many cases who had, these kids often came from prior to entering foster care, came from families where there was all different kinds of abuse and usually many, multiple kinds of abuse within the household. And it was very hard to be empathetic to those parents because you had to assume they were really bad people. And now that I'm 20 years older, <laughs> and yeah. I'm like, you know, we're all a product of our own experiences. And I mean, of course, there's things that we do that, you know, we make bad choices and there's really awful implications and all those kinds of things. But like everyone is coming from their own situation, their own experience. And oftentimes they're very legitimately doing the best they can with what they've got. Yes. So I totally understand what you're saying about feeling that sadness for his biological mom and what conflicting emotions you would have on the day of termination. Yeah. That totally makes sense. So
1: And one thing I know, you know, I grew up as a child of someone who had been adopted, and my mom was not allowed to really speak about her adoption. You know, it was a different time, too. But I know that she was always searching for a piece of herself that wasn't clear to her and was always looking for that part. And I have seen so many children, no matter what happens to them from their parents, they still love their parents or they want to know where they come from. And so that piece is really critical as a foster and adoptive parent to understand and acknowledge in the child and accept and nurture because otherwise, you know, he's going to be looking for her and hiding it from me and that would be more devastating. And so trying to stay open in my heart about his entire, you know, family and his entire being and identity is important just because of the lessons that I saw As a kid, watching my mom struggle so much trying to figure out who she was and where she came from.
0: Right. That makes so much sense. Are you in contact with any of his biological family?
1: I'm not. No, I'm not.
0: So tell us about kinship care and what inspired your work here. And how did that begin? You were already working in kinship prior to Anthony's fostering and adoption?
1: Yes. So I moved out to Las Vegas in 2009 and I had left a job at Microsoft that I just felt wasn't a good fit for me. So I came out here sort of not knowing what I wanted to do, but I had just finished my master's and I wanted to work with kids and I cared deeply about child welfare. So I got involved just working with kids one-on-one. And what I uncovered was there's was this thing called kinship care, which I didn't know about all the children I was working with were living with like their grandmother, mm-hmm. their aunt, you know, and these family members did not have training or support like foster parents had. And so, you know, just was confused as to why these kids who have the same needs, if they're placed with their family or sort of then left on their own versus if they come into a stranger's home, there's all this resource for them and the family. Right. So it just got me researching. And then that's when I really couldn't look away because kinship families take care of about 90% of kids who can't live with their parents. And there's about 5% of kids just nationally that are in non-parental care that don't live with either parent and kinship families take care of the majority of them. And so to kind of not support that didn't make sense to me. Right. This
2: episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg.
1: So, it, I couldn't look away. And then I was just hooked on it and started researching. And that's what led me to start Foster Kinship.
0: Oh, that's so interesting. And that makes so much sense. And that's like such a crazy missing link. <laughs> yeah. Like, how did the system not identify that? Yes. <laughs> that is really, really interesting.
1: It's fascinating. So, most of kinship care occurs outside of the formal child welfare system. So most of these kids have never come to the attention of child protective sure. services at
0: all. Because it's but people who were grandparents or aunts who yeah. just picked up the pieces as needed without the state being involved. Is exactly. Right? Okay. Which
1: is awesome. And yeah. we should be like, thank you for right. doing this. How can we help stabilize you? Right. But I think we take it for granted. And these families, these kids have similar needs, if not the same needs, as children who do come to the attention of child welfare. So there's still abuse, neglect. They've been drug exposed. They've witnessed domestic violence. You know, their parents are in prison or have passed away. These kids have great needs, and yet their resources available to these families are so limited that I have very serious concerns for what's going to happen in the next generation as we're not supporting these kids appropriately. Right. And it's just growing. You know, our drug crisis in this country is getting worse and it's not being addressed. And the number of kids in kinship care is going to continue to grow. So yeah. for me, it's like we all need to be thinking about these kids because they have the same needs as children who do come into care.
0: Right. Can you tell us, since you're working on your dissertation in this, can you tell us a little bit about, you kind of referenced it a couple times, but tell us a little bit about the impact of trauma with kids and whether that's the impact of drugs in the family or, you know, being shuffled between primary caregivers and losing a primary caregiver. What are some of the things that you see in trauma and what are some of the really significant things that need to be addressed where you, and you know, this is happening with kids in the foster care system and in kinship care, but this is also happening with kids who are you know often i mean i'm thinking of like the homelessness crisis in seattle these kinds of things are happening with kids who live with their parents and who are just living through very traumatic situations
1: yes i'm not sure if you're familiar with adverse childhood experience mm-hmm. um the studies they've done they call it they called aces okay. and it's really just 10 questions like if you've experienced this in your childhood you're at higher risk for a whole host of problems later in life. And the questions include, have you witnessed, you know, domestic violence against your mother? One of your parents addicted to substances, mentally ill. Have you had a parent go to jail? There's just 10 questions. And the more of the adverse childhood experiences that you have, the greater risk you are for educational, mental health, physical health issues later in life. And so just using all this really good research from the ACEs study, um, you can tie it to any child who's experienced trauma and say, we have to intervene because we know they're at higher risk of a whole host of problems. And it, you know, not being with either one of your parents I don't care where you end up. Like that is trauma in itself. Right. And usually, there's something terrible that has happened. That means you cannot be with either one of your parents. And it's you know you're usually ticking several boxes on that adverse childhood experience survey. Mm, yeah. <laughs> so you know, for me, no matter what trauma, it travels with you. It stays in your body if it's not addressed. You know, it manifests in different ways as you grow. And if it's not addressed, trauma turns you know, vulnerable children into adults who can victimize even unintentionally the next generation. Yes. And so without intervention, and these, these traumatic events, we're, we're not doing ourselves as a country any favors. So I think we need to be talking about trauma all the time and kids because traumatized kids turn into the next generation of adults who traumatize kids.
0: (laughs) Right, right. We had, I remember multiple circumstances in my work at the hospital where we had, and actually prior to working at the hospital, I worked with Child Protective Services in my senior year in college, which was fascinating. And actually I ended up changing my senior year. I ended up changing my major and adding a new minor because I was so interested in my work at Child Child Protective Services. And I knew that I actually wanted to be working with at-risk kids after college instead of being a teacher like I had been in I was going to get my elementary ed certification and be a teacher and then I was like no actually I really want to do this instead and one of the things that was so fascinating to me in working with CPS and then in working in the hospital setting is that we would get kids really lovely, charming, sweet, adorable kids. And they would always be my favorites. So I'd be like, oh man, this one he's just so great and he's fun and he's funny and I really connect with him. And those were always the kids that had come in and they were always, we called them at the hospital private room kids. They couldn't have roommates <laughs> and they were always the perpetrators of- yes they were literally like six-year-olds who were sexual perpetrators, six-year-olds mm-hmm. who were raping other kids, like crazy, crazy things. But they had been taught because they had been through a ton of trauma and they were already victimizing other people, but they had these really magnetic personalities, which made them perfect for victimizing others. Yes. And I was like, why do I attract all these kids? So it was so interesting because it was this very interesting dynamic to, every time I would identify a kid and be like, oh, the new kid is so awesome. And then I'd go read his chart and be like, Oh, great. (laughs) Another one, another one who's like already traumatizing other kids. And he's obviously had this horrific past. So that is really interesting. And I totally agree that, I mean, I've definitely saw that just repeatedly what that does, what that victimization will do to a young child. And it doesn't always take adulthood to bring it out to, for them to start victimizing.
1: No, it's so true. It can happen. You know, it happens right away. And there's that simple saying, you know, hurt people, hurt others. Mm, And it's really true. And so that's you know one of my great passions is trying to help caregivers whoever they are foster or kinship understand the impact of trauma and really work to help children deal with the traumatic events in their lives as early as possible yeah. and that's hard to get to cuz a lot of our families just need food and you know assistance right. with you know insurance and they are not ready to talk about trauma because they have very real basic needs crisis. Right. But, you know, if we're not getting to the trauma at some point, I feel like I'm not doing anything for the next generation. Yeah. So we try really hard to talk about it. <laughs>
0: Yeah. Oh my gosh. I mean, that's, that's such a big job. And you make a great point about meeting basic needs. Like that has to obviously be the priority, but those conversations are so important. And I also think, you know, I would guess for foster and adoptive parents and maybe for kinship for kin family, I'm not sure what the term for families yeah. of kin who are. Yeah. Kin families. Kin is families. Perfect. Yeah. So I want to make sure I get that right. So <laughs> for kin families, I'm sure that the desire Out of love to make everything better really quickly is really strong. And so instead of like addressing trauma, you're like, I just want to give you everything and make you like give you the most perfect, beautiful life. And I want you to never have to think about this awful thing again. But the truth is that you actually have to revisit the awful thing to move forward. You do.
1: And the interesting difference between foster parents in the traditional sense and kinship families is. Foster parents have to go through training, and usually it's a pretty intense process, and it's usually trauma-informed. Okay. So foster parents come ready to help children, and by the time they get children in their homes, you know their home has been checked for safety, they're fully trained, and they're going to get some financial support for taking care of kids, which you deserve and need because it's expensive and hard. Yeah. But with kinship families, there's no automatic training. And so all the love in the world doesn't help you understand how to handle trauma. So one of our big pushes is to get kinship families licensed Mm -hmm. as foster parents and give them access to the same training so that they are even better than foster parents. Research actually shows that licensed kinship families are both safer and more stable for kids than traditional foster parents. But unlicensed kinship families are less stable and less safe than traditional foster parents. So that training piece added to kin makes it like the best possible situation for a child. And so that's my, you know, one of the things I'm always shouting for is we need to train all the families and, you know, it's a financial issue, so I'll keep shouting about it.
0: (laughs) (laughs) So I'm sure our listeners are thinking of people that we know. I'm thinking of people that I know, friends and family members who have been in situations like this where a grandparent is raising a child or an aunt is raising a child. How do you find the families and connect with them if they haven't reached out to you? So,
1: yes. So when I started this, I really just put everything on the internet. And just so if anyone were to search for like raising my grandchild, Las Uh, Vegas, they would find me because as a nonprofit, we're, you know, no one's mandated to come in our doors. We're just here for support. So, um, but then I worked with all the logical connection points, like the legal aid center and the school district and child welfare services to make sure they knew we existed. And now it's, People are, they just come through the doors every day. We get, I think, about 30 new families at least. A, a week. day? A no, week. a week, a week. But that's that's um, still a lot. lot. It's that's a lot. And
0: all local and in Las Vegas.
1: It's all Las Vegas. You know, our numbers here are the same nationwide. It's about 4% of kids in kinship care. Some states are even higher, but... You know, the families are there and most families, once they hear that there's someone who just wants to listen to their story and support them, they're just like so grateful for anyone because they get a lot of, you know, when they reach out for help, maybe at the welfare office, you know, places, you know, that are designed to help. A lot of our government services actually don't accommodate kinship families, and so they get frustrated by the lack of support. So just being here to listen to families, just like the word of mouth spread really fast. And now we can't stay open long enough. Honestly, we're open <laughs> yeah. Monday through Saturday from like nine to nine, cause that's how many families Didn't we have you. coming through. Oh my gosh.
0: So I had a couple different follow-up questions about that, but let's start with kinship families outside of Las Vegas. If this is a local service a nonprofit, What are some recommendations that you have for people who are outside of Las Vegas and where can they make some connections?
1: So, if they're a kinship family, the first thing they should look for is use keywords like kinship and their jurisdiction, their county or state. A lot of areas do have navigator programs, which are similar to what we do, but certainly some places don't. So, they need to see if something exists. And then the other thing they can do is if they're on Facebook, There's a bunch of kinship support groups for the United States, and as soon as they connect with other families, they'll find people in their area, and just having that support system of each other takes a great deal of the stress out, and families are the best to give advice. I mean, they're like, I'll tell you where to get diapers, or this is how that works, or, you know, so the more they can connect with others, the easier their life will be, and if there's not a specific kinship support program, they should reach out to me, and I will help them start one.
0: Okay. (laughs) I love that. <laughs> I hope some people contact. We will, at the end of the interview, we will talk about how you can get connected to Allie and hopefully not over <laughs> inundate her more than she's already in- been inundated. But I mean, that would be the most amazing thing to come out of this interview is if someone were to start their own group somewhere in another state. Yeah. So what prompted you to start your own nonprofit? Let's go back to the time frame for a minute. When did you start Kinship Care and how far in advance of your son's adoption was that?
1: Okay, so I started thinking about this in like 2010. I started Foster Kinship in 2011 officially, and we got Anthony in September of 2013. So it had been a couple of years. Okay. Okay. So I was kinship first and then we became licensed as foster parents. Okay. okay. So I was already annoying our child welfare department a lot by the time I came <laughs> in. They're like, oh great, we can't turn her away.
0: <laughs> Here comes that do-gooder. Yeah. <laughs> and what inspired you to want to start a nonprofit? I know you were inspired by this particular field, but did you always been like, I really want to start a nonprofit? Because I just, that sounds like so overwhelming to me. And I'm an entrepreneur who starts businesses, but for some reason, a nonprofit sounds way scarier. So can you talk a little bit about that and what inspired that? I mean, part of it was just,
1: I didn't know any better. So (laughs) I didn't know enough to know that I should be terrified, but now I know too much. I always wanted to sort of have my own business. So I'm very entrepreneurial as well. And I just, just wanted to run something that was mine So once I was sort of hit with this need in our community to support kinship families, and I did research for a year and found that there was truly no organization that was dedicated to this, and it really is kind of sparse nationwide as well, that's when I decided to do it as a nonprofit. So I just didn't know enough to know how difficult it was going to be, and and that's really how it started. I was naive.
0: (laughs) young and naive. That's how all great things (laughs) begin. So what are some of the challenges of starting a nonprofit and running a nonprofit?
1: Well, I mean, you know how hard it is to run a business. Mm -hmm. And I always say it's like you're running a business. Obviously, it's a business, but everything is open to the public. So, you know, everything I do, every dollar I take in and every dollar we spend is can be examined at any time, which is great, but it definitely requires a great deal of understanding how every aspect of a business runs and making sure that if anyone were to look at it, everything's perfect. And so I, I kind of think of it as like, maybe you think about motherhood versus fostering. Like it's the same thing, yeah. except for your life is an open book. Right, right. It's just higher scrutiny.
0: Right. <laughs> so mothering is to fostering as entrepreneurial or like starting a business is to starting a nonprofit. Yeah.
1: <laughs> There's a high level of anxiety because they could walk in at any time yeah. and ask to see anything. Yeah. So I learned a lot. I spent a year not only studying kinship care, but I spent a year figuring out how to run a nonprofit and the basics of that and just kind of soaked in everything I needed to know. And I still don't know enough about it, but I did have a master's in organizational systems. So I had some basic understanding of certain aspects. And then I just kind of took all the experience I had from Microsoft and other things I had done and just tried to take everything and make this work. And there's a steep learning curve, but I'm grateful to have made it We're six years now. So I passed like that five-year failure mark, which is really a
0: celebration for me. (laughs) And like you said, you are open as many hours as you possibly could be, and you could still be serving more people. So, I mean, you're clearly, it's been a success.
1: Yes. Well, sort of successful. It's not like our client's they don't pay for anything. So I still have to make sure that we have the money to stay open and serve Right, right,
0: right. So yeah, I guess a success in terms of that you are meeting people's needs. Yes. (laughs) The money money piece is separate from that.
2: Totally. Making everyone happy on vacation isn't easy, but you know what is? Going to Aruba. All you have to do is walk out your door to find pristine pools, relaxing white sand beaches, and an island teeming with outdoor activities that'll put a smile on any face. You won't just feel great, you'll all feel great, filled with a calmer, more peaceful vibe that radiates Aruba's warmth. And the best part is, it never fades. That's the Aruba effect. Plan your family trip
0: at aruba.com.
3: Hey there, I'm Debbie Reber, the founder of Tilled Parenting and the author of the book Differently Wired.
1: I'm just so passionate about kinship. Like people say, well, why don't you go run for this open executive director position over here or do that? And I would not do it because I just don't care about it. For me, it's not so much nonprofit management that I care about. I just care so deeply about kids and the work that kinship families are able to do. That's the most exciting thing for me. So if I had a choice, I wouldn't move to a different nonprofit or a bigger nonprofit. You know, I only care about the cause. So I'm pretty single-minded in that, which is annoying to a lot of people. (laughs) But that's what makes it work because I care so much about it. I will do anything to make this work. Right, right. My husband always says, why don't you just take your passion and find something that makes money? (laughs) And I'm like, well, then I wouldn't be passionate. Then I would sit around and watch TV all day. So, you know, I'm just wired in sort of an annoying way.
0: (laughs) (laughs) One of the things I wanted to touch on when you were something you kind of referenced a little bit ago, you mentioned that you still have a lot to learn and that you still don't know it all when it comes to running a nonprofit. And I think that's such a, perfect, amazing and beautiful example of taking imperfect action and just starting and not waiting for like the perfect time and for everything, all your ducks to be in a row. Because if you had waited for that, you wouldn't have been able to serve as many people as you've served in the last six years. And because you just got started, even though you didn't know what you were doing and you, you know, just kind of figured it out as you went and you're still figuring things out, you've been able to serve so many people. And I think that's such an important piece of the story and also of other people, like to encourage other people to serve in the ways they feel heart driven to serve.
1: Yeah, I love that. I thank you for reframing that and making it so much more successful than it's been. <laughs> That's awesome. <laughs> but it's true. I mean, no one was telling me that I could or couldn't do it. You know, so no one was asking me to do it. No one was telling me I couldn't do it. And there was no one lined up behind me to serve this need. So at that point, you know, you're the only one noticing a problem. Why not you? Why not, you know, right. just take action and dig in and I don't regret it at all. But I did learn a lot of great things about starting a nonprofit. And so I'm always happy to talk to people who are thinking about it and just sharing all the mistakes that I made. So hopefully they can avoid some of the hardest parts. And it's hard no matter what, but I'm always happy to share because I just feel grateful I've gotten to this point and I just want to give back to anyone else who wants to do it.
0: Yeah. What advice do you have for someone who's considering starting a nonprofit? Is there like, do you have any like things they should should consider, think about, examine before starting? Yeah. Any kind of immediate things that come to mind?
1: So I always think about, so when I was in, I think it was junior high, my best friend and I were at camp and we were discussing how we were going to sneak out that night and just do something like minor, you know, we're kids. And I remember the counselor coming up to us and saying, guys, don't sneak out but if you do, don't get caught. And it was just like, okay, so we did and we didn't get caught. But it always comes to mind when people say, what do I need to know about starting a nonprofit? Because the first thing would be, don't do it. But if you're <laughs> going to do it, you, know, you need to know some basic things so you don't get stuck in, into right. one of the organizations that fails because there's like obscene number of new 501c3s that are filed every year it's like amazing. And I know that they're not all doing great work because there are not that many functioning nonprofits. And so you need to one, make sure that no one is doing what you're doing in your area because there's nothing harder than raising money. And no funder wants to give if there's like competing nonprofits, you know, you're all spending money on the same administrative costs and it's not efficient, you know, so making sure that you have truly identified a gap before you start, I think is the biggest thing I would tell anyone thinking about it. You know, if there's an organization that's even doing something similar, maybe they could take your idea on as a project or as a program instead of you having to do everything yourself. Which but would if be way
0: easier. <laughs>
1: yes, exactly. But if there's truly, you know, that gap that has been identified and you've done the research and it, that problem exists and you have a strong business case, then you know, just learn everything you can about how to do it and go for
0: it. I love that. That's really great advice. And I also love the idea of that you could take your passion and go do that in conjunction with someone else's vision or dream or like it doesn't, you don't, I'm, some people love the idea of building their own thing. But like you said, that is, it's hard and it's scary and it's definitely the higher risk option. So if you can find someone to partner with, to share your idea with, and maybe they've already started a model that might be a little bit of a safer route.
1: Yes, exactly. And the other thing, I mean, if you're going to start any business, but especially a nonprofit, you have to have some capital to start. I mean, you can't expect to open your doors and be taking your salary and getting money coming in without a track record. And so it is an investment just like anything else. And so people that have, maybe you don't have a supportive spouse, my spouse was very supportive and let me work for free for a couple of years. And so Mm If I didn't have that, you know, I don't ever want to give people false ideas of how you can just, oh, and now you're taking your salary right away. It's just not that easy. <laughs>
0: yeah. Yeah. I'm, well, I think that's, I'm not sure how that differs from uh, standard business. Because it's oftentimes in a standard business, you're also not taking yeah. much pay. I, I really think it's so
1: similar. You know, the idea of starting anything, a startup in that startup phase, you are just dedicating everything and mm-hmm. really getting nothing back right. at the beginning. So right. it's the same.
0: <laughs> right. Yeah, yeah, that can be. And think that it depends on, you know, people ask me like, well, how much money did you have to like save up before you started your, per-? so I own a gym here in Seattle. They're like, how much money did you have to save up before you opened your location? And I was like, I didn't save any money because- I didn't know that I needed to do that. And I didn't do it. I didn't open my own doors to get myself started. I worked in other people's spaces and just kind of hoarded money as I made Uh it over the course of a few a number (laughs) of years. And in hoarding money, then when it was time to go open my own place, I had the money to go do that. But initially, it was like I kept it as low risk as possible. And I didn't have kids at the time I was single. And I think that when you're making these kinds of considerations and you have a family, it's very different. And I had a friend from growing up who wanted to leave his job at a bank at one point. And he had, I think he had two kids at the time and his wife was pregnant with a third. And he was like, yeah, I'm thinking about leaving my job at the bank that he had had for like 10 years and moved his way up to go back to school and become a trainer. And I was like, yeah, no, (laughs) no, (laughs) like don't leave the job at the bank with the benefits and the vacation. And like that you've spent 10 years working your way up the ladder. I understand that it might suck, but also right now, like you have these, this family situation and like, you can you know go back to school in the evenings if you want, or you can make a transition over the course of time. But don't just like quit the job and put everything yeah. at risk. So yeah, I think that you can be strategic about it, especially if you are. It's so different once you have a family to consider versus oh being, exactly being mid twenties and just really ambitious and excited excited about do whatever
1: things. you want. Yeah, no, I always worked a, another couple of jobs until about a year and a half ago when I finally was able to do this full time. So even though it was full time running a business, I also was working in addition. So I would never recommend anyone quit their job and then start something. It's got to like be a phase in phase out situation.
0: Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So let's kind of move back over to fostering and kinship care and talk about some advice that you might have for people who want to get involved in fostering or kinship care. And ideas you have around that. And maybe similar to what I just, you know, consider, you mentioned some considerations for people who want to start their nonpro- start a nonprofit. What are some considerations that you might have for people to consider who might be thinking about fostering or people who maybe know people who are involved in kinship care? Because I think oftentimes kinship care isn't something it kind of falls in people's laps probably yeah. in most cases <laughs> they don't get to they're think not about considering it, <laughs> it. <laughs>
1: so. yeah people say that you know um, it takes 7 years for people to decide to be a foster parent and oh, kinship wow. families have to decide in 7 minutes oh, my and gosh. so two you know wildly different ways of coming to taking care of yeah. kids but i always think if you're at all interested in fostering i think it's a really rare thing that has been set upon you know people's hearts and if it's something that has crossed your mind, you're already in a unique group. And so if it's even something you've thought about, you know, just learn more by either talking to foster and adoptive parents, getting involved in, you know, at organizations or churches or, you know, program that works with children in foster care and just asking all the questions that you have. And I always say taking the training, too, is usually kind of low risk because you can decide to self-select out if it's not for you or if it's not the right time but there's no harm in learning more. So um, if it's even in your heart, I always tell people just learn more, take the next step and just see, because if it's not right for you, that'll be really clear at some point. But it's, you know, obviously something you're thinking about. So think about it a little more, find out more.
0: I interviewed another woman, probably, I don't know, six or nine months ago on the show. And she's a single woman who is a foster parent. And So we were talking about how she just always had wanted to do this and she never really considered like waiting until she was married she just thought it was something she wanted to start now and she said that when she went to kind of learn more about it she wasn't sure she was like this you know this could go either way like i could get into this and be like oh i don't know maybe this is the wrong thing or i might get into it and be like yes this is totally right and she said when she got started down the path she became like ridiculously competitive like I want to be the person who gets who like gets licensed the fastest ever in this organization (laughs) (laughs) like she just knew from the moment she got started that it was so glaringly clear that it was the right track for her yeah but I totally agree that like just kind of going through the process of data collection will bring clarity to whatever direction is the right direction
1: Yeah. And I've learned the most and have gained the most from other more experienced foster parents and adoptive parents. And they are the most passionate people that I have in my life. And as a lot of my friends who are not in this world have sort of fallen away just because everyone's so busy, you know, the families that are doing similar work are the people I rely on because it's a unique sort of group of people. And it's, you know, no one will tell you if they're being honest that it's easy, because it's really, really hard. It's like super parenting. But also, I think the rewards are so great, there's got to be a reason why people keep doing it. So yeah, so everyone should explore it if they're thinking about it. That's my push. <laughs>
0: yeah. I had an ex boyfriend tell me one time that he said, we were talking about happiness. And he was like, he was being very pessimistic and he was like well the thing about happiness is that like you can only know really great happiness if you've known equally great pain and I was like yeah that's like an awful perspective <laughs> but I've thought about it so much over the years and I'm like oh my gosh is that like totally true but I can yeah. see in parenting and I would see this I mean I see this in parenting for sure just through the parenting that I've done but I could see this in foster parenting as well that the highs would be higher because the struggles are so significant and they're unique and they're just deep in a Way that most in directions and depths that most people don't ever have to face.
1: Yeah. And I wonder, I mean, some of this might be similar with special needs parents as well. Yeah. But when I see my son succeed at something, you know, there's so much excitement because he struggles. His life is always going to be harder based on what he's experienced and the brain damage that he has just from his mom's drug and alcohol abuse. And so when he has a successful day at school or when he's accomplished something, like it's an amazing feeling. Like we're just so grateful to be part of his life and help him as much as we can, but he's an amazing fighter. This kid is awesome. So there's so much, so much happiness that comes from watching someone overcome obstacles. Yeah,
0: I yeah, know. <laughs> yeah, that makes so much sense. So you've already demonstrated this in a number of ways. But tell us in what ways you're a shameless mom. Yeah.
1: So I'm sure a lot of moms who work feel this, but I have that mom guilt where every time I'm not home, I feel guilty about not being with my son. And every time I'm at work, I feel that guilty about being with my son and vice versa. But I have just put that behind me because that guilt isn't real. And I know that by every day waking up and my son will say, mom, why do you have to go to work every day? And I can tell him, nope, I'm here, I'm helping kids and someday you can help me help kids and going and putting the time in here and helping. I think we've done over 4,000 kids now. And just knowing that, yes, it means it's a sacrifice to be away from my family, but also it's a measured sacrifice because I really strongly believe what I'm doing. And my example to my son is, no, you need to get out there and help children if you can. So I hope that that example is shining through, even though I might miss, you know, I'm not I don't have the joy of being a stay-at-home mom, but I think I'd also be probably pretty unhappy doing that because I'm so passionate about working. And so I've just put that guilt behind me and it is just sort of, I'm here for a reason and I just hope that that example shines through to my son. So that's my biggest thing is not feeling guilty about working anymore. (laughs)
0: Yeah, I love that. I love that. And I think that you talked through that so eloquently and I think that I totally agree. So before we pop over to our Shameless Mommy Minute, which is our lightning round of questions, can you tell us where we can find you and where people can connect with you when all the people from all the states are wanting to start their own kinship nonprofits?
1: So we live in Las Vegas. So if anyone's visiting and wants to stop by the office, they're more than welcome to. But the best place to connect with me is just through our website is fosterkinship.org. And all of my information is on there. I'm also really open on... Facebook, Twitter, anything like that. If people want to connect about kinship care, foster care, or starting a nonprofit, I'm always happy to talk. So they can just find me on our website or they can email me and I'll give them all my information.
0: Perfect. And I will have links to your website and to Facebook and Twitter and Instagram over on the show notes at shamelessmom.com. So people can find you there. Okay. Lightning round. you ready. I'm ready. What is your favorite way to treat yourself?
1: Okay, so until recently, it's been wine, but it's been way too much wine. So now I am joyfully sober and alcohol free, I guess I'll say. So I've been doing hot chocolate, and I'm nice. a big fan of hot chocolate with real milk and cinnamon and vanilla, and it's like the best treat ever.
0: <laughs> oh, I just had hot chocolate with cinnamon in it the first time for the first it's time recently. oh so good. Like, how have I not <laughs> known about this?
1: Yeah, no, I'm big into the hot chocolate right now. It's my new treat.
0: <laughs> Very nice. What is the current book that you're reading or the last one you read?
1: I just finished A Wrinkle in Time. Um, oh. I saw that they were rem- or making them film. And so I'm like, I want to reread that. Nice. And it was just as good as I remembered. <laughs> nice.
0: What is one morning ritual you can't live without?
1: First thing I like to do is hug my son. And the second thing is coffee. Yeah.
0: <laughs> Vinny this morning, I'm obsessed with kissing his cheeks and he's five. So our sons are similar and close in age and Vinny will be starting kindergarten in the fall. And so I always kiss his cheeks and I'm like, can I just eat this cheek? And so every morning I'm like, can I just eat this cheek for breakfast, please?
1: <laughs> yeah. there such a, it's such a beautiful age, you know, where uh, I was h- hugging him this morning. I'm like, i can still wrap you up and hold you. And, you know, it's, yeah. and he still wants to be around me. I'm just, it's awesome. <laughs> yeah.
0: Yeah. I want five to not ever end. This morning I was leaving Vinny at school and he was chasing me out the door and he's like, mom, I love you. I love you. I love you. Yeah. I was like, oh my gosh. Like, how do I freeze this? Because I know he's not going to be screaming I love you after me for much longer.
1: And isn't five such a beautiful reward from like two and three, which is horrible. Yes. (laughs) Yes. Oh.
0: It's so great. It's so great, and I think that's a lot of where I'm like what has attracted me so much to foster care in the last year is as parenting gets better and better, and it's so rewarding and so fun and so like eye opening. I'm like, "Oh my gosh, like I don't want to only do this one time." Yes. But then I think about being sleep. <laughs> do you want to start over? Right. <laughs> right. So I don't know. I'm like I think about it so much. I'm like, "Oh, there's so many trade-offs. I just want all the magic."
1: <laughs> yes. None of the early years. <laughs> right.
0: Who is your biggest inspiration?
1: I think that I'm inspired every day by the families that I'm working with and their just willingness to step up for kids keeps me fighting. So There's not one person that comes to mind, but just a bunch of people that do amazing things that make me want to fight harder for them.
0: Yeah, I love that. If you could give all moms one superpower, what would it be and why?
1: So I think it would be the ability to see the world through your children's eyes. Yes. Um, if I could see the world through my son's eyes, I think I'd be just such a better mom. And so sometimes I actively try, but I would love to just not have to try so hard. <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Just Put on some special glasses for a minute. And yeah. see. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Perfect. Well, Ali, thank you so much for being here today. I really appreciate this conversation and I love the work that you're doing. And I'm just, I'm so happy that we're connected now. And I definitely want other families who are interested in, being supportive of the work that you're doing, or perhaps pursuing similar work to make sure that you connect with you via the links that we mentioned earlier. So thank you. Thank you for your time oh, yeah. today. Thank you. thank you so much. This is awesome. Thank you so much for spending time with Allie and me in the Shameless Mom Academy today. All links mentioned in the show will be posted over at shamelessmom.com if you click on episode 218 with Allie Caliendo. So you can go over there to find resources. Additionally, please share this episode. This is a powerful episode that can help a lot of families. Allie's mentioned multiple ways that you can help families who might need resources in fostering and kinship. So please don't hesitate to share. You can screenshot the episode and share it on social media. Tag me at the Shameless Mom Academy on Facebook or Instagram and I will immediately DM you and thank you and send you lots and lots of love. Also, you can share the link if you go to shamelessmom.com, click on episode 218 and you'll get a link right to this specific episode as well. Lastly, if this is your first time listening to the Shameless Mom Academy, thank you for spending time with us. And know that we are here every Monday and Wednesday with new episodes where you can learn how to live bigger, bolder, and braver every damn day. So please do join me again on Monday. I'll be back for my Monday solo episode. And you can subscribe to the Shameless Mom Academy if you go to shamelessmom.com forward slash review. That drops you into Apple Podcasts, where there's a little subscribe button so that you will never miss an episode. You'll get every episode as soon as it's released. And you can leave a review while you're there. So know that I choose reviews every week. I choose a shameless mom of the week via one of our reviews on Apple Podcasts. So please do leave a review while you're there. Also, the reviews are basically our ratings. It's how the show gets ranked higher and higher in the Apple Podcast world universe. And it's how other shameless moms get introduced to the show. So please leave a review because it helps other shameless moms find the show and get these resources and become a little more shameless every damn day. So I appreciate you spending time with Allie and me today in the Shameless Mom Academy. I can't wait to be back here in a couple days to do it again. And until then, no matter what you do today, make sure you do it shamelessly.